Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of AM Live. Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me, which is at the bottom right of the... There we go. Thank you. Uh, great to see everybody. Really appreciate you being here. Another week full of a lot to talk about, predominantly with Ukraine. I think Biden gave away the game yesterday with his supposed gaffe, which really was just, I think, an articulation of what U.S. policy is when he said that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. He immediately, or his administration immediately walked that back and said that he didn't mean it. But I think that was the, a very clear articulation of what U.S. policy is and what the use of Ukraine has been for the White House, essentially cannon fodder to provoke Russia and bleed Russia in the hopes of sufficiently destabilizing Russia so that Vladimir Putin is forced out, which is the U.S. regime change playbook everywhere. And, you know, we don't need even Biden to confirm it. It's been openly stated for a very long time. You can go back and find many quotes from uh, well-connected U.S. establishment figures laying out this strategy. There's, of course, Carl Gershman, who I often quote. He was the former head of the National Endowment for Democracy, which is a U.S. intelligence cutout. And he declared in 2013 that Ukraine is, quote, the biggest prize and that basically if Ukraine can be pulled into the Western orbit, then that would redound to Russia as well and possibly lead to Putin's overthrow. Um, fast forward to 2017 when the proxy war that began with the Maidan coup in Ukraine was well underway. And the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is the intelligence agency of the Pentagon, reported this, quote, the Kremlin is convinced that the U.S. is laying the groundwork for regime change in Russia, a conviction further reinforced by the events in Ukraine. Moscow views the U.S. as the critical driver behind the crisis in Ukraine and believes that the overthrow of former Ukrainian President Yanukovych is the latest move in a long-established long pattern of U.S.-orchestrated regime change efforts. That was not the gray zone writing that. That was not... RT writing that that was the Defense Intelligence Agency back in 2017. And the reason they said that the Kremlin's conviction that events in Ukraine reinforced the view in Moscow that the U.S. was bent on regime change was that the U.S. had backed a coup in 2014. And then instead of pressuring its client uh, in Kiev to implement the Minsk Accords, which would have ended the war on the Donbass that broke out, the U.S. was pouring in billions of dollars uh, in weapons, and Lindsey Graham and John McCain were going over to Ukraine and saying that 2017 is the year of offense and that Russia will pay a price. So this has been made plain for a long time, and Joe Biden was just the latest person to confirm it. A few days before Joe Biden's comments about Putin, um, about how Putin should leave office, uh, a British historian named Niall Ferguson wrote in Bloomberg the following, quoting what he said was a senior U.S. administration official. The only end game now is the end of the Putin regime. Until then, all the time Putin stays, Russia will be a pariah state that will never be welcomed back into the community of nations. So there's no shortage of people beyond Biden who have made this clear. And although Biden's comments embarrassed the White House and forced them to try to backtrack, it's just so obvious that this is what the goal is, and he just gave it away. So I thought that was very revealing, and I think it holds the answer to how this crisis could actually be resolved if the U.S. could abandon its goal to basically use Ukraine 
as cannon fodder against Russia, then I think proposals are on the table to resolve this very quickly, foremost being neutrality for Ukraine. And it appears that there are even some people inside the Pentagon who want this to happen because this week, and I'll quote, I'll post the link to this, there was a few articles, including one in Newsweek, where a, a number of um, officials, including one from the Defense Intelligence Agency, said to uh, Bill Arkin of Newsweek that in their view, Russia is actually held back so far in its assault on Ukraine, which might be hard for some people to fathom because, of course, Russia's campaign has been very destructive. But they're pointing out that Russia has primarily focused, in their view, has focused at military targets. And Russia's battle plan so far, in their view, seems to be aimed at preserving space for diplomacy. Um, I'll quote to you one of them. Uh, This is a Defense Intelligence Agency analyst speaking to Bill Arkin of Newsweek. He says, I know it's hard to swallow that the carnage and destruction could be much worse than it is, but that's what the facts show. This suggests to me at least that Putin is not intentionally attacking civilians, that perhaps he is mindful that he needs to limit damage in order to leave an out for negotiations. And another official, a a retired U.S. Air Force officer who has access to current intelligence, said this, I'm frustrated by the current narrative that Russia is intentionally targeting civilians, that it's demolishing cities, and that Putin doesn't care. Such a distorted view stands in the way of finding an end before true disaster hits or the war spreads to the rest of Europe. I know the news keeps repeating that Putin is targeting civilians, but there is no evidence that Russia is intentionally doing so. In fact, I'd say that Russia could be killing thousands more civilians if it wanted to. So the aim of these uh, of these officials, if I read them right, is not to deny that Russia is committing atrocities. Of course they are. It's just to point out that this war could be getting so much worse, and it will get worse unless the U.S. abandons the goal that Biden laid out, which is regime change in Moscow. That's my take on it. So let's open it up to calls and hear what you guys have to say. And Murray, you are up first. Uh, Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, perfect. Thanks. Um, I just have a couple of very quick questions. First of all, greetings from your homeland of Canada. Um, The first question is, in your research and reporting, have you heard anything that would contradict the official story of the shootdown of Malaysian Flight 17, specifically that the perpetrators were Russian-backed separatists? I haven't looked into that too closely. My This is just purely my guess. I think that uh, what happened there was similar to what happened inside Iran when Iran shot down its own civilian airliner, that basically in these times of war, awful things happen. And in the case of the, um, in the case of MH17, it's possible that there was some sort of provocative measure taken out where basically the Ukrainian military might've been flying some flights that were, that then confused the rebels on the ground. But, but I, I would not be surprised at all if in fact the, the plane was shot down by, by the, by the Russian backed rebels on the ground thinking that they were going after a Ukrainian jet. Okay. And that's what I thought is just with the, you know, the climate of the news nowadays, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. Um, Yeah, you do. And I mean, but yeah. And on the jet, just my line is, it's just, this is why having, having proxy wars, whether it's in Russia or Ukraine are just, they, they lead to horrible things. Or in the case of Iran, when it shot down its own jet, that was after 
the assassination of Soleimani. So it was on heightened alert. It was thinking that maybe it was going to be attacked uh, with even more U.S. firepower. So, oh, okay. So you're referring to the Ukrainian plane that they shot at? Yeah, but, but, yeah. And my point is just that, that that just awful things happen when 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 proxy wars break out. And so, of course, yeah. But in that situation, it wouldn't. The idea of Ukraine deliberately shooting down its own its own passenger plane, as some people have suggested, I I personally about that. Okay, and uh, my second question, real quick, is um, what was the actual origin of RussiaGate? Because I always thought it was created by Hillary's campaign to cover up the fact that she lost to a game show host with a raccoon on his head. But I've heard that it actually predates that. So I know that you're like the world's expert on RussiaGate. Well, Hillary's campaign certainly used it as an excuse after they lost. Uh, that was like that was an official decision. It's re- it was reported on in a book called Shattered, which is written by two. Uh, Washington reporters, where basically they report that after Clinton lost, her team immediately met at their headquarters in Brooklyn. And Which decided, shake, shark, yeah, I've, I've yeah, seen and, that, and, yeah. And, and decided that they were going to blame Russia and also Comey. But yes, the the uh, fake collusion narrative was concocted before that. And the first person or the first entity to lodge it was Christopher Steele, who was working as a contractor for Hillary Clinton at the time. So... Whether or not, who exactly is the person who came up with this plot? And there's speculation that it was Jake Sullivan, who is now Biden's national security advisor. That's been suggested by some places based on some uh, declassified documents that have come out, although without, you know, the sufficient evidence to prove it. But that's just one theory. But certainly this this fantasy, this fiction that Trump was engaged in a conspiracy with Russia that began with the Clinton campaign. And the motive was, uh, well, it's not hard to guess. At the time, Hillary Clinton had this huge email scandal of her own. She was possibly even facing indictment. Trump was bringing it up all the time. So was you know, Fox News. And so trying to tie Trump to this fake conspiracy blackmail scheme could be a way to distract the public from that. And certainly it worked <laughs> to, to a certain extent. Yeah, um, unfortunately. Until, until, of course, we all found out the, the truth. Um, but you know, for example, the Clinton campaign spent a long time denying that they were paying Christopher Steele and they only admitted it in late 2017 after Republicans subpoenaed their bank records. So is, they, they worked, they worked, Steele, they worked very hard to cover up something that they helped generate. Is Christopher Steele the guy that went to the FBI and then charged Hillary for it? Or is that somebody different? Or like he went to... He went to one of the, you know, intelligence agencies and said that the Russians were working with, uh, and then like he actually yeah, so charged. That, that was, so that was Michael Sussman. Oh, okay. Who was working for Hillary as her attorney. He's, he was an attorney at Perkins Coie, which is the law firm for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Perkins Coie and Sussman paid Christopher Steele as their contractor. And simultaneously, Sussman went to the FBI and gave them another set of uh, fake Trump Russia evidence quote unquote about that was tying that was tying to try that was tying to link trump to russia's alpha bank and suggest that they were secretly communicating and sussman claimed to the fbi that he was not acting on behalf of clinton when in real life he was billing clinton for his time that's my favorite russia gay story that he billed her for it afterwards it's just how could you be so anyway i've taken up a lot of your time thank you very much and thanks for all the work that you do aaron have a great day you too thanks marie Next caller is Gez. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Holmes. 
Hey, I was wondering, what do you know about the the Wagner Group and and their activities in in the Donbass region? I was kind of trying to follow that back and, and understand it. But is that is that a mercenary group? Was it sent in? Was it like? Yeah. So Wagner supposedly uh, Wagner is supposedly a Russian mercenary group. I don't personally trust all the reporting we get about them. I think it's been a bit embellished, but. Yes, in the the broad sketch is that there's some loosely affiliated group that you can call Wagner, and they have undertaken Russian mercenary operations around the world, including in Syria. And it wouldn't surprise me if people tied to it were in Ukraine, although I haven't looked into what the details are. Yeah, that's what I also wasn't sure what to make of it, because, yeah, just where it was being reported and stuff, so I wasn't sure you know, the, the origins of it. Um, some of the stuff I read said that, you know, they, they do train in Russia near mm-hmm. the military bases, but yeah. I'm sure there's definitely some truth to it. I just, I recall seeing a source for it that was very sketchy to me. And it made me think that some of the details, some of the claims about Wagner are embellished and that they're not quite exactly what we're told. But admittedly, I haven't looked into it too in depth. But one person I, I will ask about, this is Scott Ritter, who's, Scott Ritter. A, who's a former uh, Marine Corps intelligence officer, former UN weapons inspector. And I interviewed him with Max Blumenthal this week on the Gray Zone, and he's a wealth of knowledge on this stuff. And I will I'll follow up with him because I'd be curious to hear what he has to say. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, Sean, you're next. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for calling. Um, I've been, it's pretty awesome to be able to have a conversation with you like this on this app. You're, uh, you've kind of like helped finalize my deprogramming of, you know, some of the narratives and all that stuff that are, uh, kind of force fed to you. But, um, well, Hey, thanks. That's why I'm here. That's my job. Do you know of any, um, of any, organizations that would be good to go to to try and develop some kind of international solidarity with you cut out there sean solidarity with what oh some sort of like international solidarity like since you've been overseas a lot like do you know any good organizations to try and get involved with solidarity with a specific group of people or just in general like uh, Venezuelans, uh, Palestinian. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, for I mean, it. Yeah. I mean, look. For every oppressed group, there's a there's a group in the West that's there to support them. Um, when it comes to Palestine, there's the International Solidarity Movement. There's the BDS movement. There's all kinds of groups to, you can get involved. You can get involved with. Uh, same with Venezuela as well. Um, I don't want to, it, you know, I, I try to avoid, uh, as political as I am, I, I don't want to get into direct political advocacy. So it's, it's a bit difficult for me to, you know, steer people to specific groups. But I, I can just say that there's plenty out there for any cause that you're interested in. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for the call. All right, James. Hi, James. Hi. Aaron, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I just have a question about like um, going back to your topic of the um, call. Like, what's the plan for a regime change of Russia that's not going to involve uh, like a really bad situation where, say, Russia has a lot of nukes and the West gets their regime change that they want. And what happens afterwards? Like, has there been any thought about that? Or is it just more just rhetoric coming from the West? Like, Putin must go, but then they don't really think about the consequences that might stem from that. Well, I don't think they want to achieve it via a conventional war or a nuclear war. I think they just want to, I think their aim is to cause enough deprivation inside Russia by crushing its economy, as Biden and his top aides keep bragging about to the point where people in Russia get fed up enough to overthrow him. It's the playbook they follow everywhere that they can't dislodge the leader by force. So Nicaragua in the 80s was subjected to a horrible, dirty war. You know, the U.S. poured a lot of money and weapons into this Contra army. And when that didn't work, they just imposed these awful sanctions that basically gave people a choice. Do they want to eat? Or, or do they want to uh, live under the Sandinista government that the U.S. was trying to overthrow? And eventually people gave up and they voted out the Sandinistas in, in 1990. So I, I think that's kind of a similar playbook that they're pursuing in Russia. The same thing that they pursue in Iran and Venezuela and Syria and everywhere else where they want to overthrow the government. The problem with, with, with Russia is Russia is a lot more self-sufficient than all these other targets. So I don't see how they think it could possibly work, but I guess... They figure, why not? Why not try to crush Russia's economy, cut it off from the world, and, and see what happens? Yeah, it's it's very hubris. Uh, it just strikes me as very hubristic on the West's part, thinking that they can do the same playbook that they've tried in all, a lot of smaller countries that they've mm-hmm. managed to trample. Like, Russia is not Syria or Venezuela. It's the largest country in the world with a population of over 100 million with over 6,000 nukes. And it just seems very irresponsible to me that... They think they can do the same thing. But they do. But they do. I mean, that's what it takes to be in that position. You have to have the hubris to think you can do stuff like that or else you're not allowed into the club. That's who gets admitted. And just people. I mean, it just seems like the West is on the retreat in in the long term. Right. But they're just doing the same playbook that they've done for the past 30 years, thinking that they're still in this unipolar moment, as Mearsheimer says. And it's just it doesn't seem to reflect reality at all. Well, yeah. I mean, look, everything that Mirshaimer warned about has proven to be exactly correct. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, but look, a voice like his inside Washington is just not welcome. It's not. Yeah, as he it's, says, uh, the West, of course, was not going to blame themselves, so they had to find some other reason as to why, you know, this current distra- catastrophe has unfolded. So. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks, James. Okay. Rentaro, you are up. And Rentaro, if you're there, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. And I will give you five seconds, in which case we'll bring in the next caller. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, sorry, Rentara. If you call back, I'll let you. We'll let you skip the queue. And Scott, you are up. Oh, sorry. Oh, so Rentara, I heard you at the end. So come back in the queue, and I'll let you back in. All right, Scott, go ahead. Hey, Aaron. Um, sorry, I'm blanking on my question. Uh, do you? Do you think that mutually assured destruction still holds up? And do you think that either Putin or Biden are capable of pushing the button first? Well, mutually assured destruction was holding up. It was sort of like the anchor for global stability for many years until 2003. 
And what happened then is John Bolton and George W. Bush killed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which was the first step to undoing mutually assured destruction because it allowed the U.S. to build facilities that could render mutually assured destruction useless. And um, this has been a major Russian grievance that, that, by the way, I think is is a really overlooked cause of this crisis in Ukraine. It's not just what the U.S. has been doing in Ukraine, ex- trying to expand NATO there, the 2014 coup. It's also this happening in parallel with the U.S. dismantling vital arms control treaties that keep the peace and that allow the U.S. to build up military sites like they've built since 2003 in Romania and Poland that they can aim at Moscow while claiming that all this is really done to protect Europe from Iranian missiles, which everyone knows is a complete joke. So it was working and further helping it not work was Trump's decision, again, egged on by John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, to pull out of the INF Treaty in 2019. And the INF Treaty had eliminated an entire class of nuclear missiles. It was one of the most important Cold War arms control treaties yet. And Trump killed it. And the U.S. media, instead of focusing on what a grave danger this was to the world, was more interested in its narrative that Trump was really a Putin puppet. So highlighting the fact that Trump had just killed this vitally important nuclear uh, treaty over Russia's objections and over Russia, uh, 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 just, uh, Russia pleading to extend the treaty and offering to extend it, uh, that was not important to the U.S. media, so it was ignored. And I think it also played a major role in what we're seeing now with Russia feeling that in the face of all this, it needs to basically use Ukraine as, as a bargaining chip to basically reimpose some of the arms control treaties that have been killed. I think that's actually a big part of Russia's aim here. It's not just about stopping Ukrainian expansion into NATO. It's basically taking over parts of Ukraine and then using that occupation as a bargaining chip. And that's why I say, I mean, I, I, I don't support what Russia did. I have to believe that it had other options. But I'm not going to pretend that it just woke up one day and decided to invade Ukraine for nothing. I mean, I think this was part of the aim, which was restoring some of the... Um, uh, of the arms control treaties that once kept the peace and that have been that have been recklessly violated by the U.S. Yeah, I think the comparisons from Putin to Hitler, are, yeah, it's foolish yeah. to think that that he just did this because he's easy. I had another question. I know it's not really your forte, foreign policy wise, but I'm wondering. There's there's a ratcheting up between of both. Both Putin and Biden both ratcheting up the, the temperature room. What I'm wondering is if Biden ends up having to give concessions to Russia that seem like weakness or, or some sort of giving in, will that affect or do you think it will affect foreign policy with nations like China? But we have the, the Scott, I'm sorry. You are Scott. You're hard to hear because you're cutting out. Oh, um, I, I'm just wondering if if uh, policy with China will be affected because of things like Hong Kong, because of Taiwan. If they will see giving into China uh, or giving into Russia as used to. Uh, that's a good question. Will they feel the need to? escalate with China if they fail with their goals with Russia. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, that's plausible. It's just, it's hard for me to predict or they'll be sufficient or they'll be, you know, put in a very weak position because the economy will be hurt by this cutting off of Russia and people, you know, countries will be pulling their reserves from the U S cause they no longer trust it after the U S basically seized Russia's reserves. All sort of, all sorts of things could happen. I mean, I think a lot of, really depends on what happens with Europe and whether Europe decides especially germany to stop being a u.s vassal whether it's worth destroying your own economy and raising people's cost of living including the you know having heat in their homes just for the sake of enforcing this hypothetical right of ukraine to join nato which by the way is something that everyone knows is not going to happen as Zelensky just admitted last week i don't know if you guys saw what Zelensky said on tv but he basically admitted that um that that this whole thing with with NATO, Ukraine joining NATO that everyone everyone knows that it was a ruse. This is what he said. He he was on CNN. And he said this. I requested them personally to say directly that we are going to accept you into NATO in a year or two or five. To say it directly and clearly, or just say no. And the response was very clear. You're not going to be a NATO member, but publicly the doors will remain open. So that's Zelensky admitting that he was told by NATO, presumably by Washington, that no, we're not going to admit you to NATO, but publicly the doors will remain open. And what that means is the doors will, will remain open publicly because we want to bait Russia. We don't want to give Russia this rhetorical win over a policy that actually, in practice, we have no interest in actually implementing. So it's so cynical. And um, yeah, he, he just admitted it. And it's it, it should have gotten more attention, but of course it didn't because, of course, admissions like this are inconvenient to the narrative, so they have to go away. But he said this last week on CNN. It's not clickbait, so it's not good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. TJ. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me okay? Yes, hi. Okay, hey, how you doing? Uh, all right, uh, just had a, a few questions. Uh, just trying to see... Uh, you, you you see that uh, Russia has used some of these uh, hypersonic missiles, you know, some of these new weapons that they've never used before against uh, Ukraine. Uh, I'll just add a few questions. Uh, do you think that uh, uh, – are you are you aware of uh, the, the type of weapons that uh, Russia is using against Ukraine? And also uh, another question, uh, are you uh, – do you know uh, a good source of information? Because there's a lot of information out there on Twitter, on Facebook, where people try to look for information on the conflict. You know that's reliable. Uh, do you recommend anybody uh, personally that would probably have the best uh, coverage of the crisis? Well, I'm biased toward the alternative media because I think generally that's what does the the best job of telling the truth, especially on foreign policy. So, in terms of places to go, you know, the uh, the gray zone, which I work for, I think uh, Consortium News is a good website. Um, plenty of people. Plenty of people. Um, uh, Glenn Greenwald is great. I mean, you know, just the usual uh, people who, you know, who dissent from the party line when it comes to war and peace. I just I, I recommend following them. But, you know, that said, you can still get accurate inf- or important information from the corporate media. You just have to dig for it. But usually buried in the bottom of stories in the Washington Post, or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. It's really important information. That's where I get most of my news. So. I just, you know, personally advise go with people who you trust yourself, who you think are reliable, and 
and then see who they're following and citing. And, and you can assemble from that a pretty good network of sources. And in terms of the hypersonic missiles, why did Russia use them? Yeah, it strikes me as, from what I can gather, they had very little military value, but that was just sending a signal to the U.S. and others that if they're thinking about getting involved militarily, that they should think twice because these missiles are impossible to shoot down. Okay, Aaron, appreciate it, man. Thanks for taking my call. Good talking to you. Thanks. Likewise. Thanks for calling. Problem. So, Zaz, you're up, and then and then uh, Rentaro, who was in okay. queue before, I will bring you in next. So, okay. But go ahead, go ahead, Zaz. Okay, sorry. Hi, um, I'm from Germany and also from Morocco, living in France, and I just wanted to say it's really. Um, All right, Zaz, let me just interrupt and ask you to speak into your phone because we're having a hard time hearing you. Pardon? You can't hear me. We're having a hard time, so just try to speak as you know directly into your. Yes, I am doing that. <laughs> so I was just saying that I'm from Germany and France and Morocco. And I wanted to say that um, the news is all the same and kind of is quite annoying. And uh, especially me being from Germany and um, following the news there, I just really, really, really can't understand the position that Germany is taking. Um, because um, obviously they're hurting themselves so much. I mean, the Green Party is saying, okay, uh, let's get oil from Qatar. And uh, they're, they're always saying, no, we want to be, um, we don't want to be with uh, autocrats. We don't want to be with like a regime that is, uh, you know, almost not even worse than Russia, but uh, they're going there begging oil. So why would they hurt themselves? I mean, what is, what could they possibly gain? That would be my question. It's a great question. It's a great question. Why? And I think the answer is since the Second World War, Europe has basically outsourced its security to the U.S. You know, being under U.S. protection does mean that nobody will attack you. But it means you have to follow U.S. orders and basically be a U.S. lackey. And the question is now with, you know, World War II long in the rear view and the Cold War also being over for, you know, three decades – do we really need that same system, especially one that basically needs Russia as an enemy rather than having Russia integrated into the rest of Europe, which projects like the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline would have facilitated further integrating Russia into, into, into its European neighbors. And the U.S. is opposed to that because it doesn't want Russia in the club. It doesn't want relations with Russia normalized because if you have trade and you have energy sharing between countries – that makes it harder to see them as enemies and to attack them and, and hold them up as enemies. And that makes it harder to justify the military-industrial complex, which needs enemies to survive. So why Europe at this point still goes along with that, it's a, it's a great question. And perhaps, yeah. perhaps the deprivation that will result from raising energy prices and, uh, and cutting off Russia from the economy will you know, spark some popular unrest that will compel governments to change course. But... So far, it looks like they've caved. Angela Merkel, to me, it looks like, although I wasn't a big fan of her, it seems like she understood that Russia needed to be integrated mm -hmm. in Europe, and she, and she worked hard to make sure that that would happen. But she was gone now, and the new Chancellor, Schultz, doesn't strike me as having the backbone that, that uh, she did. And Qatar, by the way, is even saying there's no way that Qatar even can meet all of Europe's demands. So this idea that... Russia can simply be replaced as a fantasy. It can't. You just can't 
find an alternative that can meet Europe's energy needs. And that's why some countries are not taking part in this energy embargo. But still, cutting off Russia from the economy is will create problems for them nonetheless. Yeah, but I'm just also wondering about the credibility because obviously no person with a few brain cells could really think that uh, you know replacing one autocrat with another autocrat is the is the policy that we are going for. I mean, if you hate Putin, I mean, why wouldn't you hate uh, Qatar? You know, it's uh, I mean, it's the country that is uh, ten times worse. Yeah, of course. Well, this has nothing to do with autocracy. That's all. That's just rhetoric. That's just. But yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. But I'm just saying, from for like for for the people, like you know, the people that vote for the government and the people that are you know taking that brainwash. Why can't they see through it? Because it's so extremely obvious, and you don't need much to understand it. You know, you don't have to follow politics. You can, like, everybody can see it so easily. Hmm. Or, Or is it, am I just, you know? Well, I mean, look, not everyone has access to the same media sources and people, you know, if you're living in a NATO country where the entire media acts effectively like Russian state media, except for NATO, which is completely uniform for the party line, then you're not going to get an alternative point of view. And you're not going to realize that there are, that there are alternatives to the current policy and that there were ways to have avoided it. You know, you're just not going to get that. Yeah, well, I guess um, we're going to just have to wait and see. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay, so I will bring in now Rentaro, who was ahead of the queue before. Hi. Hi there. Um, so I've been uh, following Patrick Lancaster's work, uh-huh. reporting from the other side of the front lines, where uh, recently civilians and, you know, Patrick himself has... Claim, made claims that Ukrainian forces are partly responsible for the civilian deaths. Will we ever find out about the, or find out the truth about what's happening? And like, um, if these accusations are true, will they, do you think they'll be ever admitted by uh, media figures in the U.S.? Uh, <laughs> I doubt that. The U.S. media never admits fault unless it's an extremely extenuating case, but that's pretty rare. What I can say is uh, in Syria, allegations that were blamed on the Syrian government that turned out to be the work of death squad insurgents did come out. You know, there's a famous massacre of Syrian soldiers in a town called Jasir al-Shagur in the early months of the Syria dirty war in, in early 2011 when things first erupted. And basically, dozens of Syrian soldiers were massacred. And what the insurgents said was that they were killed by their own forces because they refused to open fire on Syrian protesters. And that turned out to be false. It turned out to be that this was actually um, the insurgents massacring Syrian soldiers relatively early on in the in the whole conflict. And, and that came out, and that was a, that was acknowledged in Newsweek magazine. And now it's it's openly understood. But at the time, this was a a massacre blamed on the Syrian government. So I do think uh, the truth has a way of getting out, but it's, it's a question of, is there the evidence there to corroborate it? So it's hard to predict, but yeah, if I were to, if I were to bet, do I think that atrocities that have been blamed on Russia, are there ones that are going to come out that have 
where we're going to get a different story. Like, for example, the, the Mariupol theater bombing. I can't prove that Russia didn't bomb it. But if I had to bet, I'd say that the official story just uh, isn't what it is, that Russia bombed a theater full of civilians. And initially they said dozens, hundreds were killed. But then they said it was a miracle. Everybody survived. It, it doesn't make sense. So, but of course, we don't know until we know. So we'll have to wait and see. Right. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, uh, you know, I, I do tend to believe what the civilians are saying uh, in the interviews with Patrick. Mm-hmm. But, um, of course, you know, these could be fake as well. They could, um, yeah. And I just don't know how to judge, you know, or what's enough evidence. Yeah, there's no magic formula. You have to use your best judgment and or and just stay agnostic. Say, this looks damning, but there's just not enough here for me to draw a conclusion either way. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the best I could do. But certainly, yeah. p- certainly Patrick Lancaster and people like him have been speaking to people fleeing from Mariupol. And the story that they tell is far different than the narrative that we're getting of basically Azov neo-Nazis using them as human shields, killing people, all this horrible stuff. And it's, it doesn't have to be reflexively believed, but it certainly can't be reflexively discounted. Yeah, it's unfortunate because um, like looking at the Russian comments in the in the videos, it seems like um, you know they're being propagandized as well, and I feel like we're going to come out of this conflict with uh, a completely different understanding of what happened, um, setting ourselves up for you know more future conflicts just kind of sucks but uh thanks for taking my call thank you matthew hi uh hello aaron hi uh i just wanted to ask you a question regarding zelensky's motivation i assume you are aware of the podcast group that is the gaggle with rt's peter lavelle and george samuelary you're familiar with them right I've heard of yeah I know, I know who they are I don't know that podcast but I, I know who yeah, Peter and George um, are yeah they tend to flow around especially after their latest show which was very sobering according to them that NATO versus Russia war is increasingly likely after what essentially is a Biden's gaffe or not that yeah. might as well be the the policy of the U.S. according to them directly and that's because. They share the idea that Zelensky doesn't want peace necessarily when he appears on these talk shows and states that he wants neutrality when, in according to them, in reality, he's just buying time so he can get NATO to intervene eventually after what, like a, a false flag or some sort. Whether mm-hmm. it's because he is being embroiled by NATO and he has nothing to lose, really, or in regards to his people, because it, in in his mind, it's all or nothing, even if that means World War Free. It's an interesting theory, and there is some merit to it, especially considering he is the media and the U.S.'s darling at the moment. I just wonder how much agency he really has in his position, considering what we know now that Ukraine is basically a puppet state to the U.S. slash CIA. How much power does he have compared to CIA, NATO, slash the U.S.'s interest? Because if it's not much, and he's just a puppet with no free will of his own country and people, no free will of his own, yeah, 
then it's a nail then a nail washer war is inevitable and highly likely according to Peter and George. What right. do you think? Well, I don't know about the prospects for a Russia NATO war, because that just seems unfathomable to me given the implications it essentially could lead to nuclear war. But on the question of Zelensky being a puppet, yeah, I think that's pretty clear. He's compromised. Uh, you know, uh, documents kept, came out a few years ago showing that the oligarch who funds him has stashed millions of dollars in offshore accounts for him. And, you know, I ha- he, it's sad because he won on a peace mandate. He promised to make peace. He promised to pay a political price for it. But what happened to him when he came in office? Immediately, the neo-Nazis of Ukraine and other far-right forces told him to go away. When he went to the front lines in the Donbass, there's video of it. He goes to the front lines and he meets with an Azov um, regiment and they tell him that that they're not going to implement his calls to pull back, to retreat as a gesture of goodwill toward the Donbass rebels. They tell him to go away. And he says, you you can't talk to me that way. I'm the president. But they basically laugh at him. And then they hold rallies where they threaten to kill him if he implements Minsk. And he caved pretty quickly. There's been nothing to implement the Minsk peace accord since. And the U.S., instead of having his back – and telling the far right to go away and saying that, you know, the U.S. will insist on making peace with the rebels in the East. The U.S. has essentially sided with, sided with the far right. And the fact that now Zelensky is going around c- calling for a no-fly zone and calling for MiG fighter jets. Which yeah, is it, basically insanity. It's insanity sure. calling that. Sure. And the thing I, I, me- I mentioned this before, that he admitted on CNN last week. He said that he was told by NATO, which presumably means Washington, that you're not going to be a NATO member, but publicly the doors will remain open. That's a direct quote from Zelensky. So the fact that he enabled that, that instead of instead of telling the world, hey, guess what I was told, that I'm not going to join NATO, but they're going to keep the doors open publicly, essentially to bait Russia. Instead of telling the world that, he went along with it and kept demanding that Ukraine joined NATO, even though he, he was told that it was that it was not going to happen. So he's uh, let himself be used. And it's sad because he actually has built up a lot of political capital, at least in the public's eyes, that he could use now to to make peace. But it looks like he's not interested in that. He's interested in essentially following orders from Washington. And that's why that's why he gets, you know, bipartisan praise from Congress and is treated as a hero. The moment he starts being independent. And acting out of line, he'll be a pariah. Because, uh, like, how deep down do you think he really wants an AO intervention? I have no idea what he deep down wants. I don't know. I don't know. Certainly his actions suggest that, yes, that is what he wants if he's calling for a no-fly zone. Yeah, I I figured that's much. It's just really sad if, if he I, – if I was in his shoes – I don't know what would have happened to me if I called for, like, uh, if I surrendered to Russia. I don't know what happened to me personally. I don't know if I get assassinated or something, considering what the U.S. Well, that's, has the, that's the problem. That's the, that, that's the problem. It's, this is where I feel some sympathy for him is because um, he was literally – his life was literally threatened by far-right figures inside Ukraine. Um, he, uh, one of them – I've quoted him before – is the co-founder of Right Sector. Dimitri, uh, D- Dimitro Yarosh, and after Zelensky's inauguration speech, when he said he would pay a political price to make peace, Yarosh said this. He said, no, he would lose his life. He will hang on some tree if he betrays Ukraine 
and those people who died in the revolution. So that was a real threat. And, you know, when the Azov Battalion and other far-right groups hold protests in Ukraine, they've gotten violent. People have been killed when they protest the prospect of making peace. So that was a real threat to Zelensky. And so I can understand why, in the face of that, he backed down because he feared for his life. It's just a tragedy that the U.S. didn't come in to support him. The U.S. basically sided with the far-right. And what is essentially confusing to me is when he calls for the no-fly zone and basically begs for NATO intervention, uh, what, there's something in must be in his head saying, hey, this is completely wrong. This is fucked up. This is, uh, excuse my language there, but yeah. And And what does he gain by being the U.S. pawn? What does he have to lose? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, he's got, you know, he's got probably a nice future awaiting for awaiting him if he follows orders. Eventually, he can leave the country and retire somewhere, live in a nice house and have a nice life. Well, that won't matter. If it, that won't that won't matter if he if they tell him to start World War Three, that won't matter. Well, he can if he actually starts World War Three, if that really is his intent, he can get out. <laughs> he can get out in time to avoid it, at least inside his own country, you know, and I think um the uh, I think the real aim in Washington is not World War Three, because that means a nuclear holocaust, basically. But the aim is to get Russia into a quagmire. I mean, that's that's openly stated. It's it's not hidden anymore. That was written about in the Times last week, where the the a story by a number of top Times correspondents said that the aim is essentially lock. Russia in a quagmire in Ukraine without escalating into a bigger crisis. So if Zelensky can pull that off, then he'll have done his job and he'll be handsomely rewarded. <laughs> and I was just shocked as any of you when I heard like Biden call for regime change. I'm like, the, Peter and George took that very seriously and basically said, okay, it's, it's their policy. That's what the U.S. is going for. I don't necessarily... I am ambivalent to that opinion, but they can have their 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 opinion. Well, you know, on that point, I was not surprised when Biden said that because he has a history of running his mouth and blurting out the truth and really embarrassing himself and his government. In 2015, he gave a speech at Harvard. He was speaking to a bunch of students where he laid the, out the truth about the U.S. regime change war in Syria, where the Obama administration was claiming that we're on the side of moderate rebels. And he admitted that actually the U.S. and primarily their allies, uh, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, were arming an insurgency dominated by al-Qaeda. I actually have the clip here, and I'll play it for you guys so you can hear it if you haven't heard it before. Our biggest problem is our allies. Our allies in the region were our largest problem in Syria. The Turks were great friends, and I have a great relationship with Erdogan, which I've just spent a lot of time with. The Saudis, the Emiratis, etc., what were they doing? They were so determined to take down Assad and essentially have a proxy Sunni-Shia war. What did they do? They poured hundreds of millions of dollars and tens, thousands of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight against Assad. Except that the people who were being, who were being supplied were al-Nusra and al-Qaeda and the extremist elements of jihadis coming from other parts of the world. So that was Biden in, that was actually in 2014, 
blurting out the truth. And he had to apologize for this. He went on an apology tour to Turkey and Qatar and he apologized, not because he said anything wrong, but because he told the truth. And in fact, his only error was that he blamed all this on U.S. allies when, in fact, it was the U.S. basically overseeing this program all along. It was the CIA coordinating all these weapons transfers that were going to Syria. And the CIA knew that these weapons were ending, were, were ending up, as Biden said, in the hands of al-Qaeda. So that's Biden. He has a history of telling the truth. And that's one of the few positives you can say about him is sometimes he's revealingly and refreshingly honest. And that means damage control from the administration. And now they have to backtrack a little bit, I guess. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Yes, they, big time. But it's not going to fly. If I were them, I would say that, yes, we don't think what Biden meant was we don't think Putin is fit to lead Russia, but we're not actively seeking his ouster. I think that that's what they should have said. But they're, they were so embarrassed and they were so worried about being accused of regime change, given the implications of that. that they just I think they they actually screwed up their damage control. But anyway, but it's obvious. I mean, he he gave away the game. It was clear that he meant exactly what he said. Well, I, it's a little reassuring to talk to you like this. The George and well, Peter are all very, uh, yeah. the end is nigh, neo-conflict, neo-Russia uh, shooting war, inevitable or something. I mean, I yeah, don't blame yeah, them. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's possible. I just, I wouldn't sound the alarm yet. Okay. Um, but thank you for the call, Matthew. Thank you for the call. Okay. Thank you. Ivan. Thank you. Hey, Arden, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Hey, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so, um, I'm Russian. I don't know. Uh, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta say that. Um, and I was wondering to hear your opinion on, um, like, I'm Russian, but kind of media savvy. I like to read a lot of like foreign media, foreign press, Russian opposition media and government media. And before all of this happened, I guess what Russian oppositional and government media expected was for Putin to basically, you know, the most that he could do is to enter DNR LNR as um, they were before um, the Crimea. So not the regions that were controlled, by uh, by the proxies, but basically the whole region, and then you know, sort of like negotiate with the West. So to be completely honest, no one expected him to go full throttle on Odessa and the other cities outside of the region. Uh, so it was a huge, huge shock, and. In my view, like, I never been a supporter. I never voted for him. I usually voted for, like, yeah, the liberal Democrats. That doesn't matter. But, like, I never thought about him anything bad except for him being corrupt. But I've thought, I was like, okay, every, every politician is corrupt. But now, you know, he, in my view, lost all credibility because he could have said before that, you know, U.S. has... Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and Yugoslavia, of course. And basically, he did the same, which, you know, he said that, you know, we had Iraq, but it's a very, very bad explanation, in my view, for doing what he has done. And um, as, as, as far as I can see, this is such a mistake, because, first of all, the most, you know, destroyed cities are Russian-speaking cities, and uh, we can see that Finland and Switzerland 
are sort of like flying the idea of joining the NATO. So if the, you know, the general idea was to get Ukraine out of it, now we get even more countries uh, sort of like thinking about uh, joining some military alliance against Russia. And of course, you know, the whole idea of Russian world is destroyed, uh, certainly in Ukraine. So I, I guess my question would be like, even in comparison, uh, you could say that U.S. Um, has made a crime in Iraq, uh, but crime is better than a mistake because, you know, U.S. can get away with it. It's powerful enough mm-hmm. to sort of like, you know, do that and you know, basically F up everyone. But Russia made a mistake because it, you know, didn't know uh, the consequences. Right. Um, so you mean Russia knew the consequences, but still did it anyway? I, I can't say. I, I think they didn't. I, I think they really did think that they would finish the war. Right. Uh, in like Quickly. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't accept the analogy to Ukraine and Libya, because in those cases, this was the U.S. attacking countries across the world that pose no threat to the U.S. and really to anybody else. These are just, you know, naked, unprovoked wars of aggression. Uh, The U.S. had a pretext in Libya that it was enforcing a no-fly zone to protect civilians in Benghazi. There's a British parliamentary inquiry that looked into that and found that the the threat it was supposedly protecting civilians from was essentially concocted. So that was just an an outright regime change war. In Ukraine, I do think that Putin was provoked. I do think that there's a, a history here we can't ignore. The coup in 2014 the Donbass war going on for eight years, the U.S. basically sabotaging diplomacy. Obama was initially hesitant to further inflame the proxy war, but when he left office, all those concerns went away. Lindsey Graham and John McCain go to Ukraine and say, 2017 is the year of offense. Russia will pay a price. And they you know, flood Ukraine with weapons, and Obama, uh, Trump goes along with that because he wants to be seen as not a Russian puppet. Biden comes in and continues that. They you know, take steps to bring Ukraine into NATO, at least publicly. So all this, plus the, 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 um, the, the broader context of the U.S. dismantling arms control treaties and building missile sites in Poland and Romania. I mean, that does seem to me that Russia was provoked. But yes, I do have to believe that it had other options and that this launching an invasion where you kill people and cause refugees. And yes, as you say, even attack Russian speaking areas and turn your own people against you. I just don't see how that was the prudent response to the challenge that Russia faced. Now, Russia says that it had intelligence that Ukraine was planning some major offensive against the Donbass. And we've heard that before, you know, we've heard that, um, that was sort of the, that's been the excuse for some previous U S wars, right? And I just I haven't seen the evidence for that. So it's hard for me to accept that. But I would love to see Russians who believe that Putin had no other choice make the case as to why, as to what his choice were. I I have heard some people make it. And I I definitely agree with them that Russia had some legitimate concerns. But like you, I just don't see why this drastic step had to be the only answer. Well, yes, certainly. But uh... Funny, funny, uh, funny little detail. You know that before um, the elections, uh, like the state Duma elections, yeah. uh, Navalny and his, uh, you know, supporters basically said that you should vote for any party 
except for the United Russia, the Putin party, basically. Yeah. Right? So the communists and the other ones, just so that you don't support Putin. And now uh, the funny thing that many people, even who are against the war, are, you know, it's, it's painful to admit that those who voted for communists, those who voted for parties like Just Russia, they're all parties that voted and support the war. And some hmm. of the communist uh, party members even go as far as to say that we should go after Poland and we should go after different uh, areas. So, like, the support general among Russians is quite big, especially as, as far as I understand and, and read the polls among women. But hmm. uh, there is a lot of, you know, misunderstanding as to whether the goal has changed because it was talk about denazification, demilitarization. Kind of can understand the demilitarization, but denazification is very broad. Um, so who would you denazificate in Mariupol or Kharkiv, like, for example? So it seems like the goals has changed and it doesn't really... Um, I can't understand what would be the win for Russia now. Uh, maybe, like, you have an idea. Well, you know, I mentioned this before that if you take into account the the fact that the U.S. has been dismantling arms control treaties and giving it the capacity to build more offensive weapons surrounding Russia, for example, the missile sites in Poland and Romania that can hit Moscow, and Russia doesn't have a comparable site in Mexico or Canada or Cuba, sure. right? So t- seeing Ukraine, using Ukraine is essentially leverage to roll some of that back, that that will be a part of Russia's envisioned grand bargain here is that this is not just about stopping NATO expansion into Ukraine, not just about defeating the neo-Nazis inside Ukraine, which do exist. I mean, they are a real force. They're not, they're not like the majority of the country by any means, but there is a neo-Nazi battalion in the Ukrainian armed forces. They are influential. They, they did control Mariupol. I think that's all established. But so if, um, you know, using essentially Ukraine, not just, to achieve goals in Ukraine of defeating Azov and and uh, and ensuring that Ukraine can't be used as a staging ground for offensive weapons, but also using it to basically help renegotiate the European security architecture that Russia feels is a threat to Russia. That could be part of the aim. Now, again, I just I can't believe that this was a way to do it, but in terms of what the the Russian aim is, that's what that's what it seems to to me. But, 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 sorry, but I don't doubt it at all. I, I mean, like, I, I've read a lot about it and I understand why the sort of like the nationalist movement and the Azov and some of the right wings were used. Because, like, in 2014, when the Crimea was taken, it was taken so easily because, like, 70% of the, you know, naval forces of the military there were locals, were Russians. Right. So, uh, and only 30% of the Ukrainians. So that's why it was so easily taken and, like, why the uh, revolutions in the Netherlands happened. Uh-huh. Uh, so for like eight years after that, basically there was a specific goal to use people from Azov, from uh, I forgot the name of the writing party, like to specifically have them in Svoboda. The, yeah, yeah. So from to in uh, the um, military ministry and in the ministry of like that controls police. Uh, so so that specifically it will never happen again. So you have like quote unquote patriots. Uh, there, so it's not. But again, like I understand the goal to like stop expansion and that. But facts are, we now have one hundred thousand U.S. troops, which is more, I think, 
quadruple because it was 27,000 troops before uh, the war in Ukraine. And we have Finland and Switzerland considering. And Finland is basically across, you know, a few hundred kilometers from, from St. Petersburg. So as of now, it, it seems like a, it just seems like a failure. Well, we'll see. That certainly was my impression when Russia invaded. It struck me as a huge strategic blunder that would backfire. I guess for me now, it's just too early to what to issue a verdict on that. I guess we'll see. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ivan. Thanks for calling. Christina. And Christina, if you're there to talk, you have to hit the microphone in the bottom right, which is the, uh, that will allow you to unmute yourself. If you are there. And if not, we will bring in John next. And that's just a reminder to everybody who comes in. When you come into the call, you hit the microphone button in the bottom right so that we can hear you. And we'll move on now to John. There we go. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yeah. Audio is okay. Um, just to let you know, uh, that picture is about 20 years old. I'm in my 70s, and I'm sort of a Chomsky, Howard Zinn kind of guy. I always have been. So I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm used to the uh, media being controlled, but not to the degree that it has been with the advent of uh, different uh, consumption by mostly big tech. Hmm. So my my question to you is, and this you may not want to address it. I don't know if the economics is under your purview, but I'm a little bit disturbed by the uh, positions of BlackRock and Vanguard and owning uh, major. In, I mean, they're the major institutional investors in four out of the six big media companies that control ninety percent of the media that's consumed. Do you have any, uh, do you share that concern or do you have any, um, can you point in any kind of directions to get, if they're the ones that are somewhat behind this this whole uh, propaganda blitz that's even gone into NPR and, um, you know, other um, arenas? Well, I don't know the specific figures when it comes to BlackRock's investment in media. I wouldn't be surprised if it's huge. I mean, they do seem to own or partly own everything, but I don't know the specifics. But I certainly share the concern. And one person who I'd suggest listening to, if you don't know him already, is Paul Jay. I used to work for him at The Real News, and he now has a podcast called TheAnalysis.News. And he talks about BlackRock all the time. He um, he is Mr. BlackRock. And I think uh, the concerns you raise are, are very much in his wheelhouse. So uh, is that spelled J-A-Y for the last name? J-A-Y, yeah, Paul J. I will and check it, him out. Yeah, and the, and the website is, let me just actually double check it. It's the analysis.news. And uh, he definitely does a lot of stuff on, on BlackRock. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's the analysis.news. That's his website. The analysis.news. Okay, yeah. great. I also just noticed that, uh, Max Blumenthal, uh, posted a link to, uh, uh, Ukrainian soldiers killing Russian soldiers. Have you seen that? I have seen that. It's very grisly footage of Ukrainian soldiers apparently killing Russian prisoners of war, shooting them in the leg. It's awful. But uh, I haven't verified it myself, so it's not something I can I can speak to beyond that. Do you see any uh, possibility of a break in the these stranglehold of, of such a large uh, swath of the media by the government and the intelligence agencies? 
No, I don't. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but I do think. But but look, uh, we are very fortunate to live in a society that does take freedom of the press somewhat seriously, although not in the case of Julian Assange. But for the rest of us who aren't the threat to power that Julian Assange is, we still have the freedom to share our views. And I, you know, I appreciate that, that right, even though it's, even though it doesn't mean as much anymore in a time of uh, media consolidation, but it's, you know, for people who want to seek alternatives, they, 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 it is possible to find them. It's not like we're in Russia where, you know, there's increased state control to the level where, you know, stations are shut down and on TV, there's no alternative to the state line. Although I, I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's, it's all great here. Obviously, we do our own censorship, too. And in fact, we've just censored RT, Russian media, because we can't tolerate right. that point of view. But I um, breaking the the best antidote or like the best countervailing force right now to corporate media is just simply the widespread public distrust in the corporate media after being lied to for so long about so many different things. And people are, people are turning to, to alternative sources. And as long as those, as long as those sources are allowed to exist and aren't totally shut down, then I, I have some hope there. Good to know. Cause I don't, uh, I, I don't often share that hope, but, um, I do uh, want to uh, at least add my voice. You probably hear it all the time, but uh, so many people are dependent on you and just a few others in, in getting the, uh, at least uh, a, a little section of the truth that they can trust. So thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Masha. Um, hey, hey. Um, one thing before I ask my question, I just want to float this um, thing that I heard about the launch of the Kinjal missile. That it might, it's a, uh, a hypersonic missile that has Chinese made components with uh, rare earth like resources extracted out of Africa. So some people are saying that it's kind of telegraphing like, hey, we collaborate. There's a, like a multipolar military industrial complex now kind of deal. So that's uh, something I wanted to contribute. But about um, Biden saying this man cannot remain in power for God's sake, et cetera, et cetera. Even even more chilling, I think, was uh, the footage of him telling the 82nd Airborne in Poland, "You will right. see when, yeah, well, you will see when you get there about Ukraine and Ukrainians." And uh, so, was that another? Like, do you think that was another kind of like him, uh, like t- like talking when he shouldn't, like of, about real plans, or just like what was that? I totally forgot to mention that gaffe. That's right. So, mm-hmm. like 24 hours before he calls for regime change in Moscow. He tells a group of U.S. soldiers that you're going to see for yourself when you get there to Ukraine, uh, mm-hmm. suggesting that he's sending U.S. troops there. Yeah, that's a great question. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm right. I just, but it's. I hope not. Yeah. I, I hope not. But yeah, but who knows? I mean, that could have been another, another slip like that where he's giving away the game again. That's it's super scary. weird because it's not just any soldiers. It's like the 82nd are, you know, like assaulters, like hard chargers. There, there's no like aspect of peace, peacekeeping or, or like, you know, administer like nothing. They are like straight up infantry. You know, there's no other interpretation than that they mean to get into a hot war with, you know. You're totally right. And before that, there was another gaffe where he said that he was asked about will the U.S. respond if Russia uses chemical weapons in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, the U.S. will respond in kind. <laughs> so, so does that mean that he, does that mean the U.S. will use chemical weapons against Russia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, <laughs> right? It's like, crazy. 
I mean, his son is like funding their development in Ukraine. So, hey, maybe it's <laughs> right. That's the, that's the latest thing with Hunter that he was funding biolabs in yeah. Ukraine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So my question is actually about uh, who who do you think is waiting in the wings for the like, you know, if they do manage a color revolution or some kind of regime change in Russia, because it's like Navalny is now, you know, doing nine years in a prison colony. And then his the director of his sketchy foundation with its endowments, uh, Ashurkov, mm-hmm. was uh, said recently, quote, with Putin in power, it's unlikely that Alexei can get out. So it's important for us to continue our work, unquote, he told Axios. So, like, what um, what's your what's your take there? I don't know Russia's internal politics enough to weigh in on that. I do oh. think that Navalny was like the Western favorite yep. for that project. I mean, he's he's been propped up as an opposition leader, even when other opposition leaders have more popularity than he does. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, but it's like another of, Juan Guaido, right? Yeah, I mean, except with a bit more credibility than than Guaido. <laughs> it, it, it does strike me that Navalny has has credibility coming from his time as campaigning against corruption. Uh, where he did go after, you know, large parts of the Russian elite, not just Putin, but sort of everyone who was involved in that corrupt system. So it does seem like Navalny had some credibility with the public, but not yeah. enough to make him a popular opposition figure. I mean, in in one of the elections that he that his party ran in, they they barely registered, mm-hmm. right? So in terms of who else there is, I I I don't know. Well, and Navalny has a huge problem with Kadyrov. Like he's an enormously racist against Chechens, right? So yes, that's right. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so. Yeah, and that's why I. Um, that's why Amnesty International revoked briefly last year his status his status as a prisoner of conscience mm-hmm. because um, as a prisoner of conscience because Navalny had made all these xenophobic claims yep. about immigrants in Russia, yep. and then when given the chance to retract them, he said he wouldn't. He wouldn't do it. And so Amnesty revoked his prisoner of conscience status. Mm-hmm. And then they got all this outrage from basically the regime change lobby in the West. And so then Amnesty backed down and then restored his prisoner of conscience status yeah, <laughs> under yeah. pressure. But that was Crazy a very revealing it. episode. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Masha. Peter. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Uh, greetings from Delaware. And, uh, I've been in Delaware for a while, and I uh, know a lot of Joe Biden's uh, stories. Uh, just for everybody's information, if Hunter Biden is uh, uh, indicted, I will come up with some other uh, very uncomplimentary news about uh, Biden family's influence in Delaware. This involves uh, Jeff Epstein type of characters. So, yeah, but uh, following follow up with this uh, today's topic, uh, seems to me we're in the regime change again, and uh, the regime changes are always good for the uh, military industrial complex. Uh, unfortunately, as a, a U.S. voters, we cannot do a thing because there is a legal loophole uh, in all this uh, regime change business. Basically, national security claims made by the government and the president are not allowed to be challenged by the voters. If the uh, president of the United States want to conduct a regime change, we all have to just sit and wait and see what happens. Democrats do this, and uh, Republicans do this also. And, uh, uh, you know, I think during the Vietnam War, as we all know, you have to take some very insane measures 
to voice your opinion against regime change, uh, which you know the Vietnam War is all about. Uh, and uh, there's uh, three notable uh, characters uh, who actually did some insane things. Uh, Jane Fonda being one, Daniel Ellsberg, and uh, and then also this group in Philadelphia who uh, basically uh, burglarized the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania. Uh, all these are, you have to commit a crime to stop a crime, basically. So my question to you, uh, uh, Aaron, today is that, uh, uh, should the U.S. be involved in the regime change, like what Biden is suggesting uh, uh, in Russia? Uh, if not in Russia, what about China? Because as I heard a lot of uh, folks, uh, including Tucker Carlson, including some of the callers here today, uh, suggesting that the regime change is necessary for China as well. Thank you. I didn't hear anybody suggest today that regime change should happen in China. But certainly there are people in the U.S. establishment who, who want that. I uh, don't think that's any more likely than a successful U.S. regime change operation in Russia. It's just China's too powerful. And just like in Russia, there does seem to be a strong base of popular support for the government. I, I appreciate that, you pointing it out. Because yeah. it seems to me, at least according to Fox News, uh, the national security resources for the U.S. should be focused on China. No, certainly, uh, yeah. Almost China. They, uh, they definitely believe yeah, that. Ahead. Yeah, no, they, yeah. Definitely, they is, definitely believe that, yeah. Yeah, I remember Katie uh, Halper, the other, uh, in, in her show last Sunday, someone said, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson seems to be the only reasonable person on the mainstream media. I, I did not jump in because I was uh, like, uh, well, I'm pretty sure Tucker Carlson has said, you know, we probably should carry out the war immediately today or maybe yesterday against China. So I find out that to be... Uh, Right. Well, I don't. I don't. Of, I don't know if yeah. I don't know if Tucker Carlson has advocated war in China, but I do know that there's. He's certainly a part of a strength uh, of a, you know, contingent on the right that doesn't want to be tied up fighting Russia because it wants to be confronting China. But whether that's in the realm of military or just trying to defeat China's economic supremacy, I don't know. I think there are different views on that. But I appreciate. I, yeah, I, I also want to uh, bounce, uh, respond to uh, Ivan, this uh, uh, Russian fellow's uh, comments earlier, because uh, uh, I find out this actually hi history really, uh, in my opinion, almost repeats itself, uh, because a lot of us are guessing what Putin is up to, right? Why mm -hmm. he's doing this? Is this a mistake or is this just a crime? So yeah. I want to remind everyone historically. Actually, this is almost like a repeat of a history between the uh, Russia and China's relationship. Because uh, during the Korean War, every uh, generals, Chinese generals, telling Mao Zedong, do not get involved in Korea. Mao is uh, made the singular decision to send the Chinese troops into Korea. He did so after he consulted with the Soviet leaders mm. uh, and uh, you know, with a different arrangement. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking at uh, uh, Putin uh, attending the Olympic ceremony in Beijing, uh, it's just an identical repeat of what, uh, uh, what Chinese did prior to the Korea War. Uh, 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 because uh, I actually think uh, Putin made a very uh, strategic gamble, hmm. like Mao did uh, hmm. in the 50s, because hmm. Mao basically said, I'm not going to allow Americans. Actually, by the way, Mao is actually even crazier. So Putin is actually not that bad. He's a very calculated person. 
Uh, Mao actually is decided to fight not just U.S. troops, it's a U.N. troops. Remember, Korea War is so-called the United Nations police action. It's the entire world against the Chinese. And, uh, and Mao is uh, completely uh, override every single general right. below him. And uh, yeah, I, it's a, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get to the other callers because we only have limited time left. But I, but I think that's, a, that's an interesting historical analog. So thank you for sharing that. And thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, Aaron, what's happening? Hi, how you doing? Good, good. Uh, And I didn't hear any talk about this in the news, but I did read some reports about these bio labs that were in the Ukraine that were Department of of Defense-sponsored. And then, of course, there's the Biden connection with Burisma and all these other things. How how does that play in your assessment of what's going on, why we've taken the tact we have in responding to it? Yeah, Russia has made a lot of these biolabs, especially after Victoria Nuland gave that awkward testimony where she was asked whether Ukraine has chemical or biological weapons, and she didn't give a direct answer. And she instead said that she was concerned that Russia could take hold of Ukraine's biological facilities. But as weird as that was, it doesn't necessarily mean to me that there's some nefarious program going on, as Russia claims. And to make that allegation, there needs to be evidence. And so far, they've produced some documents that they say proves their case, but I haven't even looked at those. And I don't even, you know, who's to say that they're not fakes? It's hard to pin that down. Certainly, there is a, what we know is that there's a Pentagon program in the post-Soviet states to basically help wind down the Soviet era biological weapons programs. And is it possible that in the process, the U.S. violated the convention and kept some programs going in some way? It's totally possible. I just don't, you know, before I accept the Russian claims, I, I need to see more evidence. Well, why wouldn't something like that be pressed? And then what about like this whole Burisma connection with Hunter that seems to have been forgotten as not some sort of relatable item to this. Yeah. So the allegation with Hunter is that, and this has just come out that Hunter helped secure funding for these battle labs. And yeah, listen, it's, it's definitely worth looking into. I just haven't, I haven't looked into it. So I'm limited in what I can say about it, but it definitely, it's definitely worth looking into. All I'm saying is that it could, it could actually be benign. I don't automatically, assume that it's something nefarious got it and then what do you like does it does it strike you as odd to that chose to attack at this time i mean is there any what's your understanding of the timing of the attack why didn't this happen four years ago why didn't this happen why is it happening now yeah well in terms of why it didn't happen four years ago i think you can i think you can say that russia tried to give diplomacy a chance they supported the Minsk Accords. When the uh, breakaway republics of the Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk, voted to join Russia, Russia refused to recognize it and said that, you know, we want to respect the Minsk process. So if Putin really wanted to take over Ukraine, he could have done it a long time ago and he could have done it with the support Mm -hmm. of local population. So I genuinely think they tried to give diplomacy a chance. And, you know, up until the invasion, at the very end, Zelensky was refusing to all of a sudden negotiate with the representatives of the rebels. 
And he also was calling for Ukraine joining NATO. And he also was calling for Ukraine getting nuclear weapons. <laughs> so that plus the U.S. under Biden and Victoria Nuland, who played such a key role in the coup in 2014, overseeing uh, policies that were integrating Ukraine into the U.S. security sphere and were signing agreements that explicitly called for Ukraine to join NATO and the U.S. then rejecting Russia's demands when Russia made those offers for a new security pact with the U.S. and NATO and Russia claiming that it had intelligence that Ukraine was going to launch some major offensive to retake the Donbass. Those could be all the factors that force Russia to act. But whether that whether Russia had other options, I, I still have to believe that they did. I just don't I just can't believe that they had no other option but to attack. But we'll see. I mean, hopefully as time goes on, we'll get more people speaking out more on the historical record that can give us an insight into both U.S. and Russia actions. Do you have any thoughts on uh, a nu- like a revived nuclear program in Eastern and Western Europe? A revived? What do you mean? Well, like they, 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 Germany and France, well, France still has it, but Germany pretty much got rid of most of their nuclear program that could have helped to lead them towards energy independence. And now they're in this quagmire with having a dependence on Russian uh, oil to to heat their homes and provide energy. So oh, I see. So like a, not, not a nuclear weapons program, but a nuclear energy program, nuclear energy program. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't followed the debate inside Germany enough to, to say, but that's interesting. Possibly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, great topic. Thanks, man. Thanks for calling. Okay. Take care. Tom. And Tom, if you're there, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. And if not, we'll let in Taylor next in three, two, one. Aaron, can you hear me now? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Hey. So, yeah. So I'm just curious. I, I just see a lack of um, just kind of second order thinking and how everybody just kind of sees the news and takes all the different sides of the debates at face value and doesn't kind of think, 10, 20 years down the road. So like it, it, it seems like um, like something that's not talked about enough is the impending refugee crisis, which everyone keeps um, saying is like the biggest one since World War II, despite the fact that um, I think we already broke that with all the displacement that was in the Middle East throughout all those wars that were kind of the same war. Um, and how, how this like impact of refugee crises uh, affects like just kind of economies and political systems and these democracies that are taking in these refugees and, and potentially kind of the, the effects of, of polarization that kind of come, I guess, through that. I'm, I'm just curious as to kind of what your take is on, on the impending refugee crisis and whether or not we're kind of like pricing in the risk of that when we are kind of developing these strategies, these, I guess, like kind of imperial strategies. Have you read Max Blumenthal's book, The Management of Savagery? No, what is it called? The Management of Savagery. No, but I'm I'm, I'm going to write that down. Basically, it's about how U.S. regime change wars um, have this create this cycle where, first of all, so Libya, Syria, these catastrophic and Iraq, these regime change wars create refugees. The refugees come over to Europe and to America. The right wing forces inside these countries 
you know, embittered by uh, right. you know, declining economies, then use refugees as scapegoats for all of their problems and then actually exploit that to gain political power, as Trump kind yeah. of did. A, a big part of Trump's appeal was blaming everything on refugees, right? So Max's point with the book was that basically these regime change wars are the original sin and they fuel all these awful pathologies in society, including racism and xenophobia. And yeah, the more regime change wars we undertake, the more this will um, fuel that crisis. And of course, when you cause refugees, you force a brain drain at home and you're leaving societies all the more decimated whenever the wars are over and it's time to rebuild. Like Syria right now, I was there in June and I met so many people who whose family members have fled abroad because there's no, there's no opportunities there anymore because the country was left in ruins and they can't rebuild because of U.S. sanctions. So you cause brain drain and desperation in the home countries and then you fuel right-wing xenophobia everywhere else where, where people flee to. So it's a terrible cycle. And right. I totally, and, and, I totally and agree. Kind of follow not. that out through kind of the economic cost of all of that. It just it makes no sense whatsoever. Like yeah, if, it, if you it, think it, about it from a prag, prag, pragmatic kind of viewpoint. Yeah, like adding more humanitarian. Absolutely, adding millions of people to a country will be a drain on your resources, and then the people will, you know, uh, will get resentful of that, and it will fuel even more antagonism towards refugees when it's not there. I mean, all they're doing is trying to flee to a better life and, and survive. I mean, I, right. My, and and yeah. on the Syria topic too, like I, there was a article, I think yesterday in foreign policy that, that was just kind of tracking the various battle hardened. I think they said, um, Syrian kind of mercenaries that have, uh, grown up through all the different factions that have resulted from, uh, an unpopular insurgency that we've been funding there for decades that, you know, is is not democratic by definition since it's obviously so unpopular because it's not winning. Yeah, and and so you have this like fallout, this just continued blowback of of just like just just I guess like foreign policy that's made without like any sort of systems understanding where you can you have these feedback loops that just kind of create absolutely more and absolutely. more problems down the road. So now now we're now we're literally. You know, we're funding this this war in Syria that's not winning because of all these hardliners that are that are essentially sprouting up and and being like all these factions that are being erected in this country because of this unpopular war we're funding. Now we're going to be funding the Ukraine's fighting against the these factions that we created. So it's just absolutely I mean, there, and, an and another times like in yeah. 2016. Sorry, just just one more point that on the Syria thing there isn't article in the LA times, like in 2016, where the headline was like the, uh, so Syrians funded by the Pentagon are, are fighting Syrians funded by the CIA. Exactly. Exactly. And another blowback consequence is that forces that we fund overseas to fight insurgencies come back to, to the West and commit terror attacks. Like, Right, Max, of course. Yeah. Max talks about this in his No one list. likes to talk about 9-11 like that, but yeah, I mean, that's... Max, Max, talks about this, Max talks about this in his book where the, uh, the, the, the key figure who carried out the Manchester bombing where at that Ariana Grande concert, there was like this bombing that killed all these civilians at this concert. Uh, that was... He, he was basically an insurgent who the U.S. Uh, British military intelligence 
let go over to Libya to fight the the Gaddafi regime. It was part of a rat line, basically, where where the U.S. Mil- where, where the U.K. military intelligence was letting people in Britain go over to Libya to fight Gaddafi, and then letting them come back where they you know deployed their skills and their you know battlefield experience to carry out. Um, Violence, including the Manchester bombing, and, and you see, and you see that you know, Syria too. People who fought in Syria have committed out, have committed terrorist attacks everywhere, and that's what happens when you turn foreign countries into proxy wars. You attract the most fanatic people from the, around the world, and they take what they learn and they go back and they carry out attacks at home. And now you have uh, far right people from around the world flocking to Ukraine yep. to help the Azov Battalion fight Russia being given weapons that are hard to keep track of. And so what do we think? And that are hard to take back once you've kind of, of given course. them weapons. They, of course. They, they, we can't even do that in our own country. No. Um, I mean, it's, it's shocking. And, and just like, yeah, the, just the fact that what, what is this, what is an extended war in Ukraine going to do for the Ukrainian people? It's going to create just more kind of resentment against Russia. It's going to create more kind of nationalist, um, populist kind of movements and a destabilized political environment and and a absolutely destroyed economy and it, this like in no way am I understanding all this rhetoric from the Ukrainians um, it, this kind of diluted thinking just kind of essentially just you know being a voice for the US State Department because in no way shape or form is an extended war in Ukraine good for Ukrainians like it just doesn't make sense to me absolutely I totally agree thanks for the call Taylor yeah. Thanks, man. Tim. Tim, Tim, you're up. Hey, Aaron. Um, so very quickly, uh, that Scott Ritter interview was uh, spectacular. Uh, the most rewarding thing I've heard in years. So thanks for that. I don't want to like drown you with um, <laughs> praise or whatever. So let me try and get to the point. I've, I've got an alternate theory for, I think, I think basically you're thinking, you're, you're taking Zelensky at, for face, at face value, and I think it's a mistake because I think it's really obvious what's going on here. The reason the State Department loved the Ukraine you know, gambit or whatever is, as you've said many, many times, the place it, you know, has a natural divi- you know, division that, to exploit. And so once you've exploited that and destroyed the fucking place... What do you have to do next? Well, the next thing you do is you create this confection of a political leader um, to create the illusion of a unified state, which is exactly what he did. The guy is a complete joke, right? I mean, the fact that, you know, I don't care how many votes he got lying about what he could deliver for that country. What he's delivered for that country is exactly what his clients wanted. That is... Uh, Kolomoisky and his U.S. backers, right? So I think this whole idea that he's a peace candidate is is ridiculous. And it's uh, it's actually humiliating to watch how uh, the Western media covers him with accolades about this while he, he, he makes this victory tour around European capitals, cynically exploiting everyone's, you know... Um, culture, political culture, you know, like M- this MLK, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, quotes in the U.S. or, you know, his Churchillian rhetoric. It, it's, it's an utter 
fucking joke. Don't you think? Well, I totally agree with you that all that his 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 public relations campaign now is a complete joke and it's a dangerous one, obviously. Yeah. I guess I listen, the point you raise about this being his essentially his game all along and he was never serious about making peace. That's interesting and certainly being a politician who's funded by a very wealthy oligarch. An oligarch, by the way, who also funds the Azov Battalion. Exactly. So, so, so certainly you, you have, I think you have a very strong case. I think you have a strong case that I'm giving him too much credit. I, um, that's, that's totally possible. I just don't know. You know, I think it's, I, there was, there was that incident where he did go and he, he met with people on the front lines and they humiliated him. And so your contention, I guess, would be that that was, that was essentially just stage managed, that that was, that was part of the plan. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. Well, he is an actor. He is, a, and he's a very good yeah. actor. So I guess that's not out of the question. So I totally take your point. It's quite possible I'm giving him too much credit. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right. I only have time for a few more callers, everybody. So for anyone I don't get to today, I apologize. I will be back tomorrow morning at 11 Eastern time on here with Katie Halper as we do our Useful Idiots show after we do Monday morning on YouTube. So if I don't get to you tonight, I hope you can join me then or next week. Donald, you're up. And Donald, if you're there, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. And if not, we'll go on to Jay. Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Yeah. I just want to echo a point that David Sachs mentioned on the All In podcast, where it seems to be just assumed that it's a first order priority to do the regime change bit. Um, rather than do all we can to have a negotiated settlement. And it's by people who haven't, who don't seem to have thought through the unintended consequences, because this has caused a food crisis um, because of the batting of Russian exports, uh, which could also cause instability that we haven't really mapped out. And it's being supported by a lot of people, I think for admirable reasons, but they've gotten their political education and historical education last month. Right. So the overreacting to atrocity footage as though this is, yeah, this is like, this thing can't be, you know, predictably prosecuted. My, my, my question is, have they thought through some of these consequences or is there just a lot of ignorance? Um, no, they haven't thought through the consequences. It's like, did they think through the consequences of throwing their weight behind an insurgency in Syria that they knew from the start was dominated by Al Qaeda? Everyone knew that. Um, Michael Flynn, of all people, Michael Flynn, who has got some really nutty views during the Obama years, was the voice of reason where from the start of the Syria war, he was producing reports constantly warning that the dominant force in the Syrian insurgency that the U.S. was backing was Al Qaeda. And he warned that the goal of Al Qaeda and ISIS was to create a caliphate in eastern Syria. And he said that this is exactly what the supporting powers of the opposition want. So. At that point, it was so the this 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 goal of removing Assad from power in a bid to basically weaken his allies, Iran and Hezbollah, was so dominant that even the the, the obvious consequence of empowering Al Qaeda and ISIS became secondary. It didn't matter. And I recently interviewed a a guy from the CIA who was an analyst at the time, who was beat with Syria, whose his his desk was uh, position was to cover Syria. And I said to him, "Was there any debate?" inside the CIA at the time 
that over the fact that we were supporting an insurgency dominated by Al-Qaeda and shipping weapons to Syria, knowing that even if we didn't give them directly to Al-Qaeda, that that's who would get them in the end and who would benefit. And he said, no, there was no debate. <laughs> it's just, that's just how it works. People are blinded by the position they're in and they just can't, they're not allowed, I guess, if they want to be in their jobs, they're not allowed to have different thoughts. It's just how it works. It's crazy. Seriously. Uh, just just a quick follow-up. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, who aren't steeped in foreign policy and history also have an idealistic vision. And this is their first time just interfacing with the conflict. Um, and so they're, they're co-signing on a hyper-ambitious project. And they're not thinking through that even U.S. allies such as India and Israel might not be on board with the complete isolation uh, tactics. And yeah, so this. Yes. Well, hopefully that's hopefully that's the off ramp. I mean, if you look at a map as to who is sanctioning Russia, it's not anywhere near the majority of the world's population in terms of the the governments that represent the population. It's not even it's not anywhere near the majority. It's a small group of countries that the U.S. dominates. And so hopefully, the fact that the U.S. has not been able to enroll so much of the world in this project will convince it to take the off-ramp and to accept neutrality for Ukraine and end this crisis and not try to, as Biden articulated, seek regime change in Russia. Hopefully that will prevail, but it's just, it's hard to tell because so many times the sane rational choice is not what is chosen by people making the policy. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you to everybody for listening and to all those who called in. It was great to talk to you. I love doing this. So I hope you'll join me again when I do this next week. I'll be back next Sunday at around the same time, which I'll announce ahead of time. And if I have time during the week, I'll do another episode of this as well. And if you can, if you're around tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern time, I'll be on here with Katie Halper for Useful Idiots. So thanks for tuning in and have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.